Well, uh, last week was Psalm 55, this week is Psalm 66. It, it is not true. <clears throat> Next week will be Psalm 77, as someone suggested. Uh, it will be another psalm, though. We've got a couple of visiting preachers. Uh, Karen and I will be in Tasmania, but we've got a, another couple of, visiting, uh, couple of visiting preachers who you can see in the news, newsletter. Well, they're not visiting. They're members. But... Uh, psalm 66. When you arrive in a new city, many people recommend doing a walking tour run by a local guide, someone who knows the city intimately. They can show you the big tourist sites, anyone can do that, but you'll also learn about the less well-known, smaller highlights, the best little restaurants, the secret gardens, where to find the best coffee. And those little sites are often the most amazing parts of the city. And it's something like that that we've got here in Psalm 66, uh, written by a guide who shows us all the best parts of God, not just how he relates to the whole creation, but he zooms in right down to the individual. Uh, And just like the insider's tour of a foreign city, it's actually these small details which are the most amazing and the most glorious. So just have a look at the whole structure of Psalm 66. The first part, verses 1 to 6, talk about how God is king over all creation. He's the boss of everything. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. There's no limit to his power. Uh, But then in verse 7, it talks about him being king over the nations. Not just creation, he's interested in human affairs, countries and governments and cultures. But more than that, zoom in a little bit closer. Verses 8 to 12 uh, talk about how God is king over his people. He loves the world, but he's got a special interest in the group of people he's chosen for himself, his elect. They're nothing special, but he's chosen them simply because he loves them. But even more amazing than that, the psalm zooms right in, verses 13 to 20, uh, to describe how God is king over you and over me, over individuals. And so the truly amazing thing isn't... uh, God's power or his wisdom or his sovereignty but it's that a God like that is interested in individuals interested enough in tiny you and tiny me to actually hear our prayers to forgive our sins Jesus died for each one of us that's what's amazing about God Uh, so let's praise him, honour him, bless love and serve him Uh, so that's the the highlight of uh, That's the main point of the psalm, so if you fall asleep now, you've caught the main points, so it's okay. Uh, But we will go back, that's the overview, we are going to go back to the beginning, verses 1 to 6, and look at how God is king over creation. Verse 1 begins, Shout with joy to the Lord all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. God is so great, nothing less than unanimous praise is fitting for him the whole earth. It'd be like a wonderful singer or a fantastic orchestra or band finishing the concert and then they look out on the audience to find there's three people, two ushers and a dog who politely clap. Such an amazing performance deserves something far better than that sort of applause. And that's what the psalmist is saying here in verse 1. God is so amazing, nothing less than the whole earth praising him measures up 
for what he's worth. I guess if everyone is joining in, you better sing up loud. Shout with joy, uh, verse 1 says. (laughs) Shout with joy. No polite, controlled, lukewarm response is fitting for God. Forget being embarrassed or ashamed. Give God all you've got. Make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise. Shout with joy, the psalmist says. We get a number of commands in the psalm, and here's the first one. Sing up. Make a joyful noise. Uh, The second command is there in the second verse, uh, in, in the next verse, measure up. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, Well, verse 2 says we're to sing the glory of his name. We're to sing about how glorious his character is. Uh, And how are we to do that? We're to make his praise glorious. Uh, We're to make the praise that we give God glorious in the same way that he is. Our praise needs to be measuring up to God's own glory. That means we're to make a good job of it. We're to make it special, excellent, skilled, musical, heartfelt and joyous. Uh, Sometimes we hear people singing and we think, boy, it sounds like you're singing about hanging the washing up or something like that. It looks like you're sucked on a lemon. Make your praise glorious. If God is glorious, make your praise glorious. Uh, Make it measure up. Uh, our, Our worship, our praise of God is not to be trivial or boring It's not to be pretentious uh, where the leaders and the musicians are where all the attention's being uh, focused either. We actually shortchange everybody when the attention is on those who are leading, on the musicians or the singers, because God is far more glorious than any humans who might be leading our singing. It's not enough for one person to praise God or one congregation or one nation or one language The measure of God's glory will only happen when the whole earth responds to him. You see it there in verse 4? All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. Uh, So we make our praise glorious. It measures up to how glorious God is when the whole earth joins in. He deserves deserves that. Now do you notice that funny little word at the end of verse 4? I'm sure those of you who've got your Bibles open will. Uh, there's this funny little word, selah. No one really knows what it means. People have got theories. Uh, we think it's a musical term that just means pause, uh, take a break, eight-bar musical interlude, or in modern, the modern translations would have electric guitar solo, I think, at that point. Uh, the singers stop, the musicians play, and we're meant to think about the words that we've just sung. And I think that works here, doesn't it? Uh, Just think about verse 4. One day all the earth will bow down to God. Now just pause and imagine that. How awesome will that be? Well, then the singers start up again. Another command, verse 5, come and see. The writer's now calling us to look back in history. Come and see what God has done, how awesome his works in man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land, they passed through the waters on foot. Come. Let us rejoice in him. Uh, We look back to God's faithfulness. Uh, They're thinking in particular about the exodus from Egypt and how Israel crossed the Red Sea. Uh, And notice the encouragement to share in the rejoicing. Come on, let's rejoice. 
because it's much better to share the joy. There's double, uh, sharing the joy doubles the joy. Uh, when we get good news, some, we, we experience something good, we want to share it because it doubles the joy. Oh, you'll never guess what happened to me today, we say. Uh, let me show you what I bought at the op shop today. It was a great bargain. Uh, you should have seen the sunset yesterday. It was gorgeous. Let me show you the photos. Uh, we want to share good things that happen. Uh, a birthday by yourself or watching a grand final by yourself isn't half as much fun as when you get to share it. And how much more true is that when we're sharing the good things of God? Come, rejoice in God with me. Isn't he great? Uh, what is it that you're excited to tell your brothers and sisters here about? What's God been teaching you? How's he been answering your prayers? Share the joy so you can double the joy. That's what's great about church. But it's not just creation that God's in control. Uh, verse 7, he zooms in a little bit closer and points out that God is king over the nations as well. Uh, just see there in verse 7? He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Selah. Now, we read the newspapers, we look at the, the TV and we assume it's diplomats and governments and presidents or army generals or gov company CEOs who are in control. They're the ones who set the agenda. They're the ones who make things happen. That's what we assume. But God's eyes are watching the nations. It's not the ACCC. It's not ASIO who's watching Australia. It's God's eyes who are on our country. And so the psalmist calls us to look around, to rest secure in the knowledge that things are not out of control. It may seem we're on a long, slippery slope towards godless anarchy, but that's not true at all. God's eyes are watching the nations. His plans are being worked out according to his time. And that means watch out. Watch out power-hungry dictators or politicians who feather their own nests at the expense of their people. God is watching you. Watch out greedy multinational corporations who mistreat third world workers for the sake of shareholders' annual dividends. God is watching you. Watch out irresponsible users of the earth's resources. God's given you the earth to steward it, to create and cultivate and care for it. God is watching you. Watch out affluent first world countries. Watch out your pride doesn't shut your eyes to the needs of the refugees and the widows and the orphans. The rights of those who believe something different to you. God is watching our God is all-powerful and infinitely patient and perfectly just, so watch out, says the psalmist. And verse 7 finishes with uh, Selah. Just pause and consider. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. The third section, verses 8 to 12. He's king over creation, he's king over humanity, uh, and three, he's king over his own chosen people. Verse 8, praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Uh, who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to anyone who follows God. Praise our God. 
He's the king of the world, he's the ruler of nations, but he's ours. He acts on our behalf. He made a covenant with us. He forgives our sin. He's in our corner. He's on our side, or maybe more accurately, we're on his side. What does that look like? Well, verses 9 to 12 show us what that looks like to be, to have God on our side. He's preserved our lives, kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Now, it's a bit of a skim through the history of Israel, really. Now, on the surface, it doesn't really sound like much of a a reason to praise God, does it? But look a little closer. What is it that God's done as uh, they look back through history? Well, he's tested, but he's delivered. God's people went into the valley of the shadow of death, but they came out the other side. God's people have been through fire and water, but he's brought them to a place of abundance. Now I wonder as you look back over the last few years of your life whether you can see anything like that, anything that resembles that, about how God has brought you through some tough times, but he has brought you through and so you can praise him. Those tough times that God's people went through were not pointless or random. If, if things were random they'd just break us, wouldn't they? if there was no cause, if it was just bad luck. But tough times are in God's control as well. He's king of tough times. Uh, He uses them to test his people, to refine them and to discipline them. It's only a loving father who disciplines. A bad father ignores his children. He doesn't care what they do, but God is not like that. Uh, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says... My son, don't rebuke the Lord's discipline. Don't resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. We praise God through the tough times because he is king of them. Those difficulties finish up exactly where God was aiming them to finish up. He brings about his plans despite painful things happening. Romans 8.28 gives us the wonderful promise. We know that in all things, good, bad, rich, poor, pleasure, pain, sickness, health, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And that's why we can say to each other, praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Well, that's the third section of the psalm. We move on to the fourth section, the pinnacle. The the top of all the things God is king over is he's king over me. Most people with big responsibilities and, and big burdens don't have any time for the little people. You send a letter to the Queen or the Prime Minister and you'll be lucky if you get a photocopied standard response. But here's what makes God so glorious. He's interested in individuals. The creator of the universe lets us have a personal relationship with him. He forgives our sins. He sent Jesus for us. 
Now, personally, I've got no relationship with the Queen. She hasn't really done anything for me. And yet, if I was on death row and she'd given me a royal pardon, well, then I'd be very thankful. I'd be overjoyed at what she'd done for me. And that's what it's like with God. It's not his awesome majesty separated from people that makes us thankful for him. It's the fact that that power is acting on my behalf. He's a powerful, personal God. And so we offer him our thanks. And that's what the the psalmist does in verse 13. One person talking. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings, fulfil my vows to you, Vows my lips promised, my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I'll sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I'll offer bulls and goats. God's brought him through and he wants to respond in gratitude. This one person isn't too small or insignificant for God. God's heard and answered and so he's grateful. And he responds, verse 15... Uh, with sacrificing fat animals, rams, bulls and goats. He's willing to give God the best of what he's got. A glorious response that measures up to the glory of God himself. Rams, bulls and goats, the cream of his crop. And once again we've got a selah. Pause and reflect. Is that the sort of offering you're giving to God? Romans 12 talks about, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In view of what God has given you in Jesus, give him everything. Give him your words, your hands, your thoughts, your brain, your time, your marriage, your sport, your friendships, your wallet, your eyes, your holidays, your career, your ambitions. Give him cream of the crop, no second best. That's why the writer is telling us his vow, I think, and what he's giving God, to encourage us to follow the example. We're now building up to the finish, the climax of the psalm. Why is he so keen to offer God everything? Verse 16, come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Listen up. I cried out. I was in trouble. I turn to the only one who could do anything about it, the great God who controls the universe. And here's the amazing thing. He's listened. He listened. He heard my voice. Who am I? And the psalmist tells us so that we might follow his example, that we would ask and praise that he would listen and act and answer for us. The writer finishes with one last praise, verse 20. Praise be to God, who's not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. It finishes as a singular, but we're listening in. So let's join with the writer. Let's use the psalm as a blueprint for our praise and our prayer. Let's shout our praise with joy. Let's thank him for how glorious he is and how glorious his deeds are. Let's look back. Let's look forward to heaven. Let's accept his discipline uh, with joy in the present and offer him our whole lives. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. 
That's true. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't leave us to find out what you're like on our own, but you, through your word, tell us what you're like and you tell us how we should respond to you. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who shows us what you're like more clearly still. And we thank you for your goodness that though you are awesome in power, you hear you forgive and you answer. Thank you. Amen.